Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears, we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big, we go all night, and here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hello and welcome to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. 95.1 FM on AM760 in Hawaii. Uh, it's Friday. That can only mean one thing. It's Legends of Sport Friday, and it is our good friend, Mr. Andy Bernstein. Hey, Andy, how are you? Rosh, doing great, man. Always glad to be with you on Legends of Sport Friday. Love it. Uh, love the individual you had on a classic episode, and it is uh, the, you know, the year that I really became a big Los Angeles sports fan, Andy. 1988 and i thought every year would be like that the lakers winning the championship and the dodgers winning the championship and the dodgers i fell in love with the dodgers because of the, the bulldog it's Oral hersheiser what was it like to catch up with him and by the way I, I want you to touch on you didn't just photograph the lakers over your career you photographed the, the dodgers as well right oh absolutely man well listen my my dodger roots my dodger blue roots run deep um I'm a Brooklyn guy, so my family were diehard Brooklyn Dodger fans. Um, I don't think I was really uh, rated um, highly in my family for the profession that I chose as a sports photographer until I got the Dodgers team photography job in 1984, which was really my first major job. I mean, I, I was freelancing. I was doing some work for the NBA. Um, doing various freelance jobs for different magazines and what have you. But when I got the Dodger, the call from Steve Brenner at the Dodgers to be his team photographer in, in uh, 1984 in spring training, it was uh, like a dream come true to the whole family. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and um, I stayed in that job for 11 years until 1995. Um, had to leave and it was really difficult decision for me to leave because I was getting just so busy with the NBA stuff that that i just didn't have time the nba job became kind of a um a year-round proposition so i had uh, groomed a great photographer who i met while i was at usc john suhu <laughs> and uh john took over for me and has been there now 38 years you both are i mean any young photographer knows your your two names and you have a very special event that you guys have coming up on uh, April 13th, you're mm -hmm. on the board, of course, of the South Pasadena uh, Arts Council. Now, it's not only you and John Suhu, it's Dodgers legends, it's Lakers legends, and fans who are listening can go. How can they do that? Well, this is an in-person event. Um, it's a fundraiser for the South Pasadena Arts Council, as you said, Arash. Been on the board for a long time. It's a wonderful organization of volunteers uh, people um, in all the arts, uh, different phases of arts, um, 
trying to enhance and illuminate the arts in our South Pasadena area. And uh, John Suhu and I are teaming up to do a great event um, featuring his photography of the Dodgers, my photography of the Lakers. We're going to have Laker legends, Byron Scott and Michael Cooper there. We're going to have Dodger legends, Oral Hershiser, Jaime Harin. Just heard Eric Karros is going to show up. Oh. Um, it's going to be a, a ticketed event um, to raise money for the South Pasadena Arts Council and the Dodgers Foundation and the Lakers Youth Foundation. Oh. So three really good, um, amazing organizations. And uh, it's going to be held at the iconic, legendary Ice House in Pasadena, which is uh, people are familiar with the comedy scene in LA. The Ice House was one of the um, was the preeminent, one of the three top comedy clubs in LA for decades. I mean, every great comedian, you name them or her, they played there. And the Ice House kind of went a little bit downhill, um, you know, in the early 2000s. Johnny Buss bought it before the pandemic and uh, spent the entire pandemic completely rebuilding it from the bottom up. Wow. And it's absolutely a spectacular venue. And Johnny so gracious, graciously and generously donated the venue for this event. So it's on April 13th at the Ice House in Pasadena. Starts at 5.30. There is a VIP level ticket, which gets you to mingle and uh, talk to and get autographs from the legends. Um, and then there's a general admission ticket, which gets you into the panel discussion with uh, myself and John and the four legends. And folks can go to the website. The easiest place to find us is the South Pasadena Arts Council website, which is sopasartscouncil.org. So sopasartscouncil.org. Or you can go to the Ice House's Instagram. So it's that's the Ice House CC Instagram, and there's a link there. And we're going to tweet out that info as well. Thank you. We're going to tweet that out from our show handle, my handle, your handle. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that event some more when uh, we come back. But first, Great. first things first. First, your conversation with the legend himself, the Bulldog. It's Oral Hershiser. We obviously want to talk about 88, of course, you know, what an incredible season that was for you. But and of course, what's going on for the last year and a half as a broadcaster. Did you ever expect to get into broadcasting? Well, um, yeah, I, I had thought that I would do a lot of different things or get myself ready for a lot of different things. Even when I was playing some anything from coaching to managing the general managing to I would talk to Peter O'Malley about stuff. I'd talk to Fred Clare about things. I'd talk to coaches, Tommy Lasorda. So I was really pretty much not interviewing, but really taking in a lot of information during my career on what other people's days were like. Uh, I did the associate general manager job with the Rangers. They asked me to be the pitching coach. I did that for three and a half years. Um, when they asked me to be the pitching coach, very few people know that at the same time I said, well, I still want to come to the ballpark about 9, 10 in the morning and do the front office stuff. <laughs> and so I was allowed to be in scheduling meetings, uniform color meetings, um, spring training schedule meetings, uh, free agency meetings and signings, trade talk meetings. And so when they made me the pitching coach, I said, uh, I, I'll do the pitching coach job, but I still want to be able to have access to the front office and all those meetings. I don't want to get kicked out of those because that's a huge education, and that's the main reason I'm here. Mm. And so I was the pitching coach then for another three and a half years and went back up to the front office, 
after that and felt like things up there were not going to be where I wanted to be. So I called ESPN, ended up with a job with ESPN for about 10 years, doing the Little League and College World Series and Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday night baseball. And then the Dodgers opened their network and off we went. They came and courted me to come back to L.A. And that was a great, great thing for me to to be doing what I've been doing for in broadcasting, but doing it for a team where I could root for somebody also. Yeah, and what was that like to take over from one of the most iconic baseball voices of all time, you and Joe Davis? How, how long did that take yeah. for you both to feel it comfortable? It was uh, very in interesting to take over our, or really just kind of fill in for Vince Gully. We were doing the road games because he was no longer traveling. And then Joe and I were hired to be together with Nomar Garcia-Para. Uh, they've adjusted the team a little bit. Since uh, Vinny retired, we went full-time uh, home and road games with uh, Joe and I doing the broadcast, and they moved uh, Nomar mainly into the studio, which has really worked well for him because he's raising kids still at this age, so he's home and close to the kids on a daily basis a lot more when he's in studio. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to go back a little bit because your story is, is so inspiring for so many people, I think, because it is, of course, an underdog story. I mean, you were... Traveling a lot, I know, your, your family when you were a kid, and you eventually wound up in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where you, you pitched and you set a lot of records. And I guess you were technically cut from that team, kind of like Bowling Green at the next level. Can you, can you talk a little bit about you know, the fact that you were, you were drafted in the 17th round by the Dodgers? Throughout, everybody doubted you. The scouting report was always, you know, this guy is... This wiry guy, he's got this nice librarian, quote-unquote librarian face, you know. He doesn't have the, the yeah. meanness, the toughness. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood? I mean, it, it, it is certainly interesting. Well, I was, you know, I was born in September. My parents decided to put me in school instead of leave me out. So I was always the youngest in my class. Mm. I was always last to drive, last to shave, last to, to really mature. So... I was never really in the A group. Uh, I was one of the athletes, but I was never really the first one picked. I was kind of had some ability and was a good kind of role player in different sports from anything from hockey to baseball to played some individual sports like tennis and golf. And those were a little bit more fun for me because you don't get picked on. You don't have teammates that are bigger and stronger and you're not getting picked on. But (laughs) I think a lot of the difficulty in being young and being a little scrawny and not hitting my growth spurt and my strength until I was about 2021, uh, I think it helped. I think it built a lot of calluses. It it built a work ethic. Uh, It built my passion and love for the sport. So no matter if I was getting cut or not one of the best guys, it, uh, it, it gave me a lot of energy and passion to say, you know what, I love the sport no matter where I am on the team. And what really happened is as I would reach the end of every kind of class, meaning like sixth grade, I ended up being pretty good. At the end of high school, I ended up being pretty good. By my junior year in college, I ended up being pretty good. So I always got rewarded a little bit for the hard work, like every three or four years. But uh, it really just did pan out to uh, to feeling like, you know, what hard work does pay off, uh, being the underdog is okay. That motivation factor compared to being depressed and giving up is the right way to go. And I just believe champions and heroes, they experience fear. They experience difficulty. They experience tough times. But those guys, they never give up. And mm-hmm. that kind of mentality kind of got developed in me. Yeah, you were the 195th pitcher taken in the 1979 draft. And after you retired in 2000, you had more wins than any other pitcher in that draft. You were the 440th player taken. 
I mean, it's yeah. it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't like you just kind of hit the ground running when you came in, in to the Dodgers in, in 1984. I mean, you needed a little bit of a, a mental kick in the ass, right? I mean, there's, of course, the famous Tommy Lasorda Sermon on the Mound story. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that changed your mentality when you were on the mound facing batters? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Tommy got tired of me picking. You know, I really, you grow up idolizing big leaguers. You grow up, you know, working your, your rear end off to get somewhere. But even when you get somewhere, uh, it doesn't mean you feel like you belong. And at the beginning, it was like 17th round draft pick, still kind of scrawny. Now I'm back into this whole situation where everybody's bigger and stronger and better than me. And I probably was a little bit timid, and especially with trying to make a perfect pitch every time. And Tommy pretty much gave me the nickname Bulldog because he wanted me to attack, and I think mainly baseball strategy, he wanted me to throw more strikes. He believed in my stuff. Mm -hmm. And so that belief that he had in me, I can kind of manifest it in the fact that, you know, all right, he believes in me, and he's going to be a Hall of Fame manager, and he's won world championships, and he's tough as nails. So if he believes in me, then i got to believe in myself. And strategically on the mound, it, it meant, you know, throwing the ball for halves of the plate and keeping it down. It meant throwing your curveball for a strike and not necessarily need to hit the corner. It meant, you know, in a jam, you can still get out of it. And so I think it just, uh, every time I'm hurting bellow, come on bulldog from the dugout or call me that, it reminded me of what he thought of me and what he wanted me to be. Yeah, I used to love to hear him yell that because I used to shoot right next to the dugout, and uh, he threw out a lot of bulldogs when you were pitching. <laughs> is <that right> now? <laughs> um, a lot better than the other words. Yeah, well, we can't. You know, this is a family show, Oral. So, um, so Oral, tell us something. Tommy, being a, uh, a you know an ex pitcher, and you know he always um, painted the, the fact that he was you know the next great Cy Young Award winner that never got the award. But <laughs> but um, how much did that have to do with um, with his credibility with you. Of course, he was a tremendous manager and motivator, but the fact that he had been a pitcher, did, did, did that influence you? You know what? Not in the least bit. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think, you know, when Tommy coached you, there was a lot of it that was he was coaching himself of what he didn't do as a pitcher because he didn't have much command, hmm. especially when he got to the big leagues. If you look at his short big league record, there's a lot of walks there. Right. Um, and I think I think a lot of his passion is uh, from the disappointment of not getting an opportunity. If Tommy would have pitched in my generation or later as we go forward with all the more teams there are, uh, he would have been a big leaguer for a long, long time because he was the borderline big leaguer that Koufax takes his job. And then Sandy goes on and does what Sandy does. But there weren't as many teams. There weren't as many pitchers. So mm -hmm. if you think Tommy was on the borderline back then, he would probably be in the, you know, the, the lower 50% of people that would get an opportunity. But he would still have been in the big leagues probably five to ten years mm -hmm. and maybe would have figured out what he was trying to do at the time where he only got just a taste or a cup of coffee in the big leagues. He might have been up here for a full meal. Mm-hmm. You know, 1988 was obviously one of the, that year was probably one of the best years for any player of all time. You know, you won the Cy Young, led the league in wins, innings, shutouts, complete games, third in ERA. You finished the season with a record 59 consecutive scoreless innings pitch, breaking the mark, of course, held by Dodger Don Drysdale. You know, that was really, and then of course you won the World Series and, and, and Gold Glove Award. I mean, that alone should put you in the Hall of Fame. Why? Why? Why are you not in? And I'm not kissing ass here, but pardon well, my we French, can because we could advocate for Oral. Can I? Can I nominate you? Of course, because this yeah, is... <laughs> you know, the Hall of Fame is a really special place. Yeah. And uh, 
I think that, you know, you can have the Hall of Good and the Hall of Great and the Hall of Fame. So I don't know where I fit, what hall. Uh, I've seen the Pete Rose commercial where his wife comes out and says, Pete, you're not supposed to be in the hall. So uh, you guys can advocate for me all you want. I think that uh, the, the, the Hall of Fame is over a length of a period of time. And the funny thing about, you know, the great year of 88, I always have advocated that uh, I had a better year in 89 because I didn't have 59 scoreless, and I think my mm. ERA was only like 0. .2, 0. .3 higher. Mm. And so since war was invented, if you go back in like the baseball reference, my war is actually higher in 89. Mm. And mm-hmm. I didn't win the Cy Young. Uh, Cy Young ended up going to a reliever mm. because none of the starters really had what they, at that time statistically would have been an exceptional year. But it was really interesting to see, and I was, I kind of felt justified that when people say, yeah, you had a better year in 89. I'd be like, I really felt like I did a more consistent and better year. Oh, interesting. We didn't to win the World Series, and we just didn't happen to have the whole team going on, but it was it was a lot of fun. But the mm. Hall of Fame, you know what? I got cut from my high school team. I got cut from my college team until my junior year. I made it to the big leagues. That's enough. That's my Hall of Fame. Anything mm. that happened after that was a great team accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Well, well said, Oral. And uh, so when you were when you were in the midst of this fifty nine inning streak that you have, scoreless streak, which was unprecedented, you know, basketball players talk about being in the zone and all that. Did yeah. you feel like you were just unbelievably unhittable? I mean, how did how did how did you feel in the middle of that streak? You know, I think, you know, people want to landmark a streak as, okay, that was just a special moment of time, and it was. But it wasn't a special moment in time as far as mentality. It was a special moment in time as far as results. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, you know, as an athlete, you work on execution, mm-hmm. and you believe that if you execute, you have the best chance of accomplishing and getting success. Uh, you also have a, a lesser chance of being defeated, but the chance of being defeated is still there. And I think it just all fell together. I think the ground balls were hit at people. The strikeouts came at the right time. Me being able to execute the pitch in the moment when it was needed to prevent a run compared to just get an out. Uh, Mm -hmm. It all worked out. And my team wasn't scoring many runs. So it made, you know, a leadoff double was something that I needed to strand. Uh, A leadoff triple, if it happened, I needed to strand that runner. It wasn't Mm -hmm. a time to... Uh, trade outs for runs mm-hmm. uh, and just, you know, win the game. It was a time that every run counted because mm-hmm. we weren't a very uh, offensive team, you know, and right. it was a lot of fun. It was a, it was an absolute blast. I mean, there was a lot of pressure, but it was fun. Well, one, one question comes to mind about that 88 uh, streak is that it came right at the end of the season, right? So yeah. you guys ran that, I mean, to the last game, right, of the season. Right. So you guys kind of ran that right into the uh, playoffs, right, and kind of were riding the momentum of that wave. Um, yeah. So the streak really kind of took on a life of its own in terms of the, the, the mentality of the team and the motivation, and that was a very unique team, to say the least. How did, how did you guys feel in the clubhouse um you know of of course kirk comes out and hits that home run and that set the stage for you guys winning the world series but going into that series that the world well actually the the nlcs that no one predicted the dodgers to even be in the playoffs you know but you were projected to finish fourth in the nls at the beginning of that season yeah but how did you how did you and 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 the rest what was the mood in the in the clubhouse then well it changed when we signed Kirk Gibson and second look free agency, remember Fred Clare ended up being the general manager because of the, the problems that Al Campanis had mm-hmm. the year before. And all of a sudden Fred is getting ripped in. 
you know, the winter meetings because is he really ready to be a general manager? Didn't make many moves, but he then makes a big trade with Oakland, who we end up playing in the World Series, getting Jay Howell, getting Alfredo Griffin, our shortstop, gets mm-hmm. Mike Davis, an outfielder, gets John Shelby, gets Kirk Gibson, and second book hmm. free agency. All of a sudden, the roster is like, oh, we can do this. And then Kirk really changed the mentality of the team in spring training right from the very first game when Jesse Orozco put the eye black on his yeah, head. I was there that day. Yeah, that was... Quit. He was <laughs> like, I'm out of here. Right. And, you know, that kind of mentality uh, was... He made it cool to care. He made it cool to care outright. It was like, we're not afraid of the media. You want to see our emotions? Here we go. And you want to do interviews about it? Here we go. So mm-hmm. before, it was a little bit more of a PC kind of clubhouse mm-hmm. as far as how we all acted and what, how we played on the field. <laughs> but the, the politically correct attitude was changed completely and flipped upside down by Kirk Gibson. And so mm-hmm. the Saxes and the Marshalls and the Sochas and the Hershizers and the Hatchers and everybody started to show their personality. Mm-hmm. What a unique squad that was. And, of course, Tommy being sort of the, the band leader <laughs> of you guys. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been another team or will ever be another team like like that 88 team. It was just amazing to be around every single day and to experience what you guys were going through. Yeah, I'm thinking about that Drysdale record, and what what record do you think will never be broken in baseball? All right, let's leave it there for now. Uh, just amazing conversation. It's Andy Burstein. It's Oral Hershiser talking about 1988, the Dodgers winning a championship, the Lakers winning a championship. Uh, so, again, just uh, an amazing conversation between those two. Uh, when we come back, more Legends of Sport Friday with Oral Hershiser when we come back right here on the Mightier 1090 in Southern California, the bet in Las Vegas and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. We'll be right back with the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears... We create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big. We go all night. And here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Welcome back to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. 95.1 FM and AM 760 in Hawaii. Once again, it's Friday. It's Legends of Sport Friday. It's Andy Bernstein. And Andy, not only did we get to hear the first part of your conversation with Laurel Hershiser, you will be joined by him on stage and John Suhu telling mm-hmm. these amazing stories. Uh, what can fans look forward to? I mean, I was lucky enough to be on a panel with you, and it's just a fun time. Uh, you get these guys to be so comfortable because you and John have known them for years and it's just going to be a good time. If you're a Dodgers fan, if you're a Lakers fan, you want to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You do. <laughs> um, very rarely will uh, the teams in L.A. Uh, combine forces in any way. I mean, they all get along with each other. They all support each other's foundations. But to have legends from both teams in the same room 
is uh, is going to be a wonderful experience, you know. And and just a couple of things to think about, you know, the '88 Dodgers, of course, you know, famous for Oral Hershiser's incredible 59 inning streak and all the awards he won, and of course they won the World Series, Kirk Gibson's home run. The Lakers also won a championship yeah. in '88. Right. Pat Riley actually called that like his favorite team yeah. that he coached. Um, and fast forward to 2020, it happened again. You know, during the pandemic in two separate bubbles, um, the the Dodgers won the World Series and then the Lakers won the NBA championship. It kind of flip flop because of the timing. Um, so we'll have a lot to talk about. You know, yeah. I, I just went to the Showtime reunion a couple of months ago. Um, Coop and, and Byron were there. We'll talk about that. We're, we're going to have the great Jaime Harin with us, who wow. just retired after like 60-whatever years behind the mic. Um, Jaime's going to be amazing. And just it's going to be a wonderful conversation. And what's also great is that you're up close and personal at this club. You know, it's not like going to a big theater or whatever. Yeah. The Ice House, as you know, is a small venue. It only seats maybe 160, 180 people wow. next. And uh, you're right up there. You can ask questions. You know, the, the, the legends are going to be very accessible. You'll hear about my career and John's career, how we met, how our careers have, have really taken incredible paths forward, but we've always stayed amazing friends. Um, this is going to be a wonderful night, and uh, please come and support it. Again, we only play a small portion of these great uh, sit-down conversations you have. This one with Hershiser. Uh, a, how can they hear the whole thing? But also, you, you do a great job on social of telling people how to, how to go to the, these like events and your workshops. How can they listen to the entire conversation? Well, our, our uh, Legends of Sport podcast can be found in two places. Um, the audio, our, our home is iHeart, but of course, you can get on any podcast network, Apple, Spotify, whatever, Legends of Sport. Um, or you can go to our YouTube channel, Legends of Sport, right? And uh, also our Instagram, at Legends of Sport. We post about everything, like you said, not just about the podcast, but about everything that's happening and is related to legendary sporting moments, athletes, what have you. Um, we do a lot of cross pollination between Legends of Sport and my Instagram, which is at ADB Photo Inc. So in the bios of both are uh, the links to this event. Again, the event is April 13th at the uh, legendary, and I don't use that word lightly, legendary ice house in Pasadena, Lakers legends, Dodger legends, John Subo and I, um, for three great causes. So please uh, consider, if you can't come, make a donation to Spark. Um, right there on, on the website, um, and there'll be a link to that. And again, legends of sport across the board. Again, I mean, you, you guys are not going to want to miss this uh, Michael Cooper, Byron Scott, Doral Hershiser, Jaime Harin. It's going to be a who's who. The stories that you're going to hear that night are going to be amazing. With that said, let's hear some more amazing stories on Legends of Sport. Friday, it's Andy Bernstein sitting down with the legend himself. It is Doral Hershiser. Unbelievable uh, an athlete in, of your stature is that you, ha you have this inc incredible injury that most 
athletes would have to walk away from. You know, Kobe blew out his Achilles at the end of his career, came back and scored 60 in his last game. I mean, when you started pitching again after the recovery from the surgery, can you talk about there had to be some fear there, like that, that first pitch, that first, you know, I can't imagine what that must have felt like for you. Yeah, there's there's a there were a lot of hurdles. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just playing catch was a hurdle. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just getting the catcher to move the glove from waist high down to knee high because you have to hold on to the ball longer. Mm-hmm. It's more stress on your arm to hold on to it. Gives it less time to stop the arm, mm-hmm. so that puts more pressure. Um, pitching in the minor leagues and having fires come up and having your rehab start maybe canceled or moved back. Um, getting to the big leagues and walking around the mound after a few pitches and just waiting for the pain to subside so that you can throw the next pitch. I mean, I rubbed the baseball up and was probably one of the slower workers when I first came back because it was almost pain every pitch. Mm-hmm. But Dr. Joe assured me that, you know, the shoulder's not going to break. You might still feel the pain and the nerve endings still might be tingling, but you're not going to hurt anything. It's just hurts. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was right. I came back in 13 months, but he told me early on that the pain in the shoulder probably won't subside for about two years. And he said, the reason I know that is because scar tissue doesn't really completely heal for two years after a surgery. And so he was right almost to the day. Mm -hmm. It took about two years for my shoulder to really calm down, but I pitched in the big leagues in 13 months, and Mm. the next nine months were pretty painful. Mm. You know, Andy and I were in Las Vegas last week doing a few interviews at the Wynn, and we played a little bit at the tables. I know you're a huge poker player and quite successful. You had uh, quite the run against Ted Forrest, Alan Cunningham, Freddie Deeb. Uh, what are the similarities between poker and pitching? Um, what makes you so good? What, can, can you give Andy yeah. and I tips? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know what? I lost a lot of money early on, and I said I'm either quitting or learning, and I took lessons. You don't um, seem like a quitter to me in anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, uh, if if I quit, it's 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 for real good reason. Like I found some milk not to quit at. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I'm definitely not going to stay idle. Did, yeah. Do, do you find yeah, the poker it, poker started to make sense to me when it, when I started to think about it in my pitching outline? Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is in pitching, it's you know the fifth inning. I've got a two run lead. I'm in the middle of the order. I don't want to walk this guy because the next guy be the tying run. So I'm going to attack him. I'm on. I'm on astroturf. I'm and the, the ball's moving pretty good on the left side of the infield. I'm going to try and make him hit a fly ball, hmm. or I need the outs of the other side. And so all the things that I used to analyze in my head before I pulled the trigger on the pitch. It's like poker. Um, poker is, you know, I'm in the big blind. I'm, I'm going to play premium cards here. Uh, there's there's six limpers. I've got ace-king. I don't want to play ace-king against six people. I want to play it against heads-up, or I want to take the pot down now, so I'm going to raise. Mm. I'm going to analyze the other guy's stack size. I'm going to analyze what the turn card is, and if this guy, you know, somebody who's fearful if the flush card comes, so that I can bet and represent the flush, or do I need to play it conservative because this guy's a really tight player and he's probably got a big hand. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a lot going on. Do you scout these guys? I mean, if you haven't played well, against them scouting, before? Yeah, you're scouting every hand. That's just so, amazing. I mean, you know, it's so you, similar you know, to baseball. Bet, you don't bet big. Yeah. And you don't really, until like, uh, probably two loops, at least two loops, three loops into huh. the game is before I really start to get active with any kind of hands that are not premium hands. Wow, it, it really, it just strikes me as so similar to baseball, where you kind of play around with, a, you know, with, with the order for maybe the first time around, and then you just, you know, you just... 
attacking them, right? I don't mean to jump around here, but I'm just looking at this great quote from Sandy Koufax, and this was in 1988. He said, the key to oral success is his constant striving for perfection. Perfectionists are usually given a bad rap, but there's nothing wrong with trying to be better than you are, the best that you can be. And oral's going to have to get even better, not so much because the rest of the league will catch up to him, but because they're going to want to try that much harder to beat him. But he's a remarkable young man, and I think he'll get better. Who were your idols, and when you were you're playing, who were your mentors growing up, oh, or vice versa, rather? <laughs> who were your well, idols growing you, up, and who were your mentors? Made, yeah, the one you just quoted made a huge impact on me. I mm-hmm. mean, he taught me how to stand on the rubber. He taught me how to leverage my body. He taught me how to be patient down the hill. Hmm. You know, he taught me about working a lineup and completing games. You know, Sandy, Sandy was, is, and still is a mentor, but I don't get to see him as often as I used to. But, uh, yeah, and Don Drysdale, as far as toughness and strategy, was a broadcaster on the team, learned a lot from him. Ron Paranowski, our pitching coach, is ridiculously smart on breaking down hitters Mm. on how to get them out. Tommy Lasorda, as far as the emotional side of baseball and being my baseball dad. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dave Wallace, who has a tremendous reputation and a lot of people don't hear about, but has worked in the Dodger organization, the Red Sox organization, a great pitching mind and could have been a general manager. And, uh, there are so many. Del Crandall, our AAA manager when I was coming up, uh, mm-hmm. taught me an awful lot. Ex mm-hmm. big league catcher. Mm-hmm. Do you ever play the what if game? Like what what if I you know I quit at Bowling Green when you were hitchhiking home after your sophomore year? <laughs> you know, what if uh, you know I didn't make the varsity team? What if I never wound up in the Dodgers system with an amazing coach like Tommy Lasorda? You were supposed to be get traded to the Texas Rangers with Dave Stewart and a couple guys for Jim Sunberg at some point, right? And what if you yeah. just wound up in the wrong system with the wrong Coaches, do you ever think about what your life would have been? No, I don't waste my time with that. <laughs> <laughs> I do it all the time. Yeah, I do. Waste the time. I also don't watch Lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, it's all because, fantasy. You know, Lifetime's like the man hater network. Everything right. you watch on there is yeah, like right. a man does something wrong. Right. <laughs> I just avoid that stuff. Like, what if you weren't? You know, what if you weren't a tough, no stubborn son of a gun? Yeah, right. <laughs> but you're you're a man of faith. I mean, does that not factor yeah. in? Like, how's that factored into to both on and off the field for you? Well, I I think that you can't use faith as a handicap. I think you say, you know what, I'm going to absolutely do my best. And I've I've always said that when God sees a highlight film of my life, it doesn't matter if I'm winning or losing. It just matters if I'm trying my hardest. Sure. So, Mm -hmm. you know, somebody gives you talent. Somebody gives you an opportunity. Somebody uh, affords you something that you have a chance to be part of something. And you don't take it. Uh, you can't look at them and say, you know, you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me enough opportunities. You know, you're supposed to do your best. <laughs> right. You know, Tommy Tommy said, uh, you know, taught you not to respect batters uh, as much as you did coming into the league. But what hitter did you respect the most over your career? Oh, Tony Gwynn was ridiculously good. Mm. I just threw it down the middle and said, you decide. Throw it to inside, you pull it, throw it outside, you hit it the other way. I said, you decide. That's the best way to get him out. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, the... The low ball hitting lefties, you know, like a Bonds, like an Andy Van Slyke, like a uh, Lenny Dykstra at the time, a Wally Backlund, different guys. Uh, mm-hmm. That was my strength, and a lot of those guys had to go strength against strength. So I didn't actually, it was never really in awe of guys. Mm-hmm. There was a time at the end of my career, because I almost pitched till I was 42, that I'm like, I am just naked out here on the mound, and I don't know how I'm going to get this guy out, so I just got to... <laughs> I just got to go and do my thing and, and kind of hope. So maybe some intimidation and some respect <laughs> that a 
at a much higher level than my prime mm-hmm. when I know I absolutely got donkey do. That's it's really it's really really interesting to know a game inside and out. I've studied it your whole life and still get to walk out onto the field with the world's best and know you're not even close to the best. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a different place to be. It's a you uh, you really have to play a fantasy game with yourself to yeah, like you, get out there and be brave enough to go face these guys. You such great control of that low and away part of the strike zone. I mean, you own that. I mean, that must have been such a confidence booster throughout your career, knowing that you could always make that pitch at any point when you needed to. To if set I up, could always make that pitch. Mm-hmm. My scoreless streak would have been a thousand innings. <laughs> so let's just say I always felt like you could take a pitch into a big league game when you could ex- execute it about seven out of ten times, mm. and and you had to and you had to. Uh, take it into the game and the other ones that you missed had to be good misses mm-hmm. I mean like in golf they don't hit the perfect shot every time but they make a lot of good misses I think that's the way pitching is that you execute exactly what you want maybe three or four times you ex- you execute maybe uh, in the general area which ends up being a really good pitch maybe another three or four times and then those other three are like misses but they need to miss in the right place. Mm-hmm. And if they miss in the right place, then the batter still doesn't have a chance to hit them as hard. But you miss in the wrong place the fewest number of times, you're probably going to win the game. Mm-hmm. You know, Oral, uh, we're familiar with a lot of your stats, of course, your most well-known stats. But one that jumped out at me when I was doing research for, for this interview was what a great hitter you were. Yeah. <laughs> 93, you know, you won the Silver Slugger Award. You, you hit 356. I mean, no one gives you credit for that. I don't remember anyone ever talking to you about your hitting. Yeah, the scouts missed that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they didn't have that on the report. It, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't worry about that. No, but I never it's hit it, a home run. Maybe that's what they like to look at with pitchers. I hit the wall twice. I think. So mm-hmm. I wish that was a stat. Mm-hmm. Hit the wall twice. I, I would have saved those balls. Yeah, but I, I don't have any home run balls. But was it a sense I of pride for training? For, I hit one in spring training. My mom was at the game. God rest her soul. Yeah, and she went out and traded two of my autographed balls, which she embarrassed me by coming to the bench and saying, "Oral, sign a couple balls. I got your home run ball." I go, "Mom, it's spring training. I, I got another it. inning. I'm going out there. Get me two autographed balls. I get your home run ball for you." Oh, Millie Hershiser. That's just, that's, that's amazing. That's Unbelievable amazing. mom. <laughs> hey, Oral, do you and remember when I was with San Francisco? I was like 41 years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of a parental moment. Just for a sec, do you remember? You remember that family day that that we had at Dodger Stadium? I don't remember what year it was, but your son Quentin was probably three. Do you remember? And I took that picture of the two of you sitting. You took the picture of him running out. He was about probably four or five. Yeah, yeah, I remember that picture. We're both like our feet are in the air, running out to the third baseline. It was so so cute. And and the, the picture I'm referring to that you're sitting. In my office, Andy. Yeah, I, I love that. I love I love that moment. I love that family day because you could always just see. You know, this is what life is all about. This is why you play so hard and work so hard yep. for your family. But how old is he now, Quentin? Quentin was born in '84. Oh, so God bless him. Okay, Jordan, Jordan, who's 30, just got married on Saturday. Oh, God! Date the broadcast. Wow! Congratulations. He's in Spain right now. Oh, congratulations! Uh, and he was drafted by the Dodgers, right? Yeah, drafted by the Dodgers. Ended up making it Triple A with the Dodgers and with uh, San Diego, and then was released and wanted to get on with life, and is now in commercial real estate. Oh, that's wow, that's fantastic. fantastic. You know, I, I I have to ask one other thing. I know you have to go, but Oral, you didn't yep. know the name, your name, until a freak moment, right? You were doing a commercial when another athlete told you what your your name meant, right? 
Yep, I was doing a Puma commercial after 88, and <laughs> in the commercial representing Puma also was Martina Navratilova. I think we were having a Quiznos sub on a park bench while we were waiting to do the second half of the commercial, and she's like, Oral, do you know what your name means? And I'm like, uh, Jay Martina? I'm not getting set up for a joke here, so I'll just say, no, I don't. And she goes, well, it means eagle in Slavic. And I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you for saying that. You've saved me for the rest of my life. Wow. And so, yeah, it has the umlau over the E, hmm. and it means eagle in Slavic, and, uh, huh. That explains a lot. means something bad, too, now, though. I think Hershiser means, like, Mr. And then think about what comes out. Uh, Mr. Mr. Shit, we'll just say. Hershiser. Uh, so, so there'll be no Oral the Fifths? That's yeah, it? Yeah, there is the Oral the Fifth. That's why Quentin. Yeah, Quentin's Fifth. Oh, Quentin. Yeah. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. You know what, yeah, I, so. you know what I, I love about you is your ability to laugh at yourself, which I always respect when somebody <laughs> can do that. You, you said something that I love, this quote. I'm just a pale guy with glasses, long arms, and a sunken chest. I look like I never lifted a weight. I look like I work in a flower factory. People compare me to Clark Kent and Superman, but Clark Kent at least had a good body. I'm Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's so great. I mean, that's I think that's the key to honestly success in life. Uh, you know, being able well, to laugh at yourself, being that secure. You know, it's important. Yeah. Or that insecure. <laughs> <laughs> well, or all I can say is we ra as we wrap this up is first of all, thank you for so so much for taking the time yes. on a busy day, and uh, thank you also for the memories that I'll always have um, with that ADA team. Uh, I carry that with me. I've been around a lot of championships and especially in the NBA, but that will, I mean, I can't even compare that to anything else being part of that run. So thank you for always being great to work with and a good friend. And when you see my boy, John Suhu, yes. tell him I say hi tonight. A friend of oh, Legend yeah. of Sport. <laughs> we love John. John yeah. and you guys, and John just got a nice award. He travels with us still. We go to dinner a lot. Uh, so he, if you're still with us, you'd be hanging with us. Yeah, I will. I'll, I'll see you soon down at the stadium. Yeah, and we look forward to many more years of, of hearing your voice on Dodgers broadcasts. All right. Keep up the fantastic work. Vinny, but maybe a few more. Laura, <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, man. Thank you. All right, guys. Take okay. care. Well, a big thanks to Oral Hershiser for coming on to the Legends of Sport podcast way back in our infancy, way back in season one in 2018. Huge thanks to Steve Brenner, the guru of PR for the Dodgers. Steve was my first boss <laughs> and uh, so gracious of Steve to get Oral to come on back in 2018. Thanks, fellas. Many thanks to my terrific producer, Eugenia Chow, and our editors, Megan and Sean, as well as our social media manager, Michael. Remember, everyone, you can find us on the iHeart app and online, as well as Apple and Spotify and your favorite podcast platform. Keep following us on Instagram at Legends of Sport, our Twitter at Legends underscore of Sport, our website, legendsofsport.net, and our YouTube and TikTok channels, Legends of Sport. My photography can be found on Instagram and Twitter at ADB Photo Inc. Also, please check out my exciting workshop coming up at the end of June. All right, that's all the time we have for this amazing episode of Legends of Sport Friday, Oral Hershiser absolute legend you can't tell the story of los angeles sports without talking about the bulldog and the amazing season he had in 1988 winning the cy young winning the world series winning the world series most valuable player uh just an absolutely amazing career and what an amazing conversation he had and uh listen a perfect way to go into the weekend uh so folks have an amazing weekend we'll talk to you all next week with that said this is arash markazi saying stay safe and stay healthy 
This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hustle for the cash, so it's hard to knock it. Everybody got their own thing, currency chasing. Worldwide through the hard times, worrying faces. Shed tears as we bury brothers close to heart. What was a friend, now a ghost in the dark. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.